Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre, based in St Melitus College, which is a community of people studying and teaching Christian theology here in the UK and around the world. Graham Tomlin, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Jane Williams, in discussing God, life, theology, in fact, just about anything. Welcome to another edition of GodPod, and uh, whether you are an uh, old seasoned listener who's listened to many of these podcasts in the past, or whether this is your very first one, you are very welcome to um, join us in this uh, conversation about sort of theology and life and everything that we talk about on GodPod together. Today we have um, a very simple format. It's uh, me, Graham Tomlin, and we also have Jane, Jane Williams. Yes, it's me here. It seems very strange without Mike, doesn't it? Exactly. And it's do you just think the two we'll of us. manage just the two of us? We'll, well see what we can be, do. Maybe some sort of awkward pauses somehow. <laughs> you know, we're waiting for Mike to come in. It will certainly be very serious, won't it? Mike does the jokes, really. Yeah, he, he lightens the mood <laughs> in all kinds of ways. So, um, uh, so apologies for the lack of Mike, the end of the absence of his dulcet tones. Um, but uh, it's just the two of us today to have a kind of um, conversation about. Um, uh, about a couple of questions that have been handed in uh, around our usual coffee and biscuits. Now, today is, is actually, we're recording this on Shrove Tuesday, the day before Lent starts. So, um, so we should be eating pancakes, really, shouldn't we? We are. We haven't got any pancakes. We have got biscuits. And we feel obliged to go through the biscuits because we can't eat them after tomorrow being Lent. But um, we're, if you see some munching halfway through, that's exactly <laughs> what it is. But um, anyway, we are going to start with a question uh, which has come in from um, uh, Gary Mitchell. Uh, I don't know where Gary lives, doesn't tell us where he lives, but uh, he says, uh, thank you for your excellent and thought-provoking podcasts. If you start an email like that, you're more likely to get your, your question asked, because we, no, we like comments like that. So thank you, uh, Gary, for your, um, uh, I'm really glad you enjoy listening to this. So the question is, um, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed your most recent podcast on the Good Samaritan. I guess we talked about that at some point, didn't we? I would think we, think we must have done, yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, and then he goes on, one aspect which has had me thinking all morning is the idea that the half-dead man to whom Christ refers is maybe Christ himself. I'm drawn to ponder this by making two parallels. The first is Matthew 25. Um, I guess that's the one about, uh, you know, the least, much as you did to the least of these, you've done to me. Uh, the other is that the Good Samaritan passage itself refers to the highly symbolic transportation of the victim on the back of a donkey to an inn. So is there a link between the, um, the donkey on which the, um, the, the, the victim of the story is taken to the inn and presumably Jesus riding on a donkey in Palm Sunday? Maybe that's the kind of link that's there. So as an interesting reading of the Good Samaritan story, are we to take um, the, the victim of the story as being Jesus? And it kind of raises all kinds of questions about how we read uh, parables and, and um, how we take them. So... Jane, your initial reactions to well, um, that reading of the Good Samaritan? I mean, I found it a really intriguing question because it does make you wonder how much of his own experience Jesus drew on in telling stories. Most good storytellers um, are not necessarily telling their own autobiography, but they're often drawing on things that have actually happened to them. Um, and so, um, and we, obviously, we've got no idea if Jesus was actually attacked on the road and left half dead. Um, but it must have been something that uh, was commonly known that, and that um, people could uh, identify with. Um, but I think one of the things that, um, again, that really struck me is that that way of noticing echoes 
um, in biblical stories that seem to be echoes of other biblical stories is, is something that the fathers were very keen on. They, they very often saw um, the Bible as a, as a sort of um, intricate, interconnecting maze where you would expect to have echoes across. So, I mean, I suppose if you, if you were doing those kind of echoes, you could um, see the, the um, donkey carrying uh, wounded humanity to the inn as, yeah. as about the birth of Jesus as well as yeah. the, perhaps the death of Jesus. Yeah. Um, yes, and I guess um, I mean, St. Augustine, among others, had a very kind of... Um, typological or even allegorical reading of the Bible, didn't he? Where, where he would read all kinds of things into biblical stories that we would feel a little bit nervous about, um, about reading. So the Good Samaritan story, you know, the um, as we probably said in our last discussion of it, you know, the um, the two coins are the two sacraments, and the inn is the church, yes. and everything part of the story has a meaning within the um, the structure of Christian ideas of the of the world. Um, I guess we're a bit more nervous about that kind of allegorical reading today. But do you think there's a there's a sort of um, there's a point to it. Is it something we just put to one side and say, well, that's just the way they used to think about it in the past, but actually now we think better. No, but is there something in that um, that allegorical, typological reading of the details of the story and seeing more in it than you might on the surface? I mean, I I, I think what makes us nervous is um, is the kind of whole apparatus of critical reading now that um, that we bring. Uh, not just to scripture, but to other kinds of texts, um, so that uh, it isn't acceptable to start with a reading that has that seems very divorced from the reality of what is actually in the text. Um, uh, and um, I think that's that's the danger with these really allegorical yep. readings: is, the, is you can sort of do anything yeah. without paying attention to what's actually. Um, on the page. I guess the other part of the nervousness is, I suppose, we, we emphasise a fair bit in some well, some readings, not all uh, ways of reading texts, the the intention of the author. Yeah. Um, when Jesus was telling the story, did he really think that the inn was the church and the two coins were the sacraments? It's kind of hard to imagine. It that. is hard to imagine. That. <laughs> and therefore, you're reading more into the story than Jesus perhaps intended. And so that also makes us a little bit nervous about it. Um, but on the other hand, the strength of it, um, and I do think you have to start with the plain sense of the text and, um, and where it fits historically. You have to do that work first. But then the strength of it, of, of when you watch the fathers doing this kind of allegorical reading, is it puts us all in the biblical text. Mm. It mm. puts our reality, our story, as part of this huge narrative. Yeah. Um, we become imaginatively involved yeah. um, in the story. Yeah, and you can sort of sense Gary doing that. He's reading this text in, in, with new eyes yes. and looking at it in new ways and seeing resonances in the story. And I suppose the test of that is is um, is not, not so much, you know, did Jesus or the author of the gospel intend that when it was written, but does it chime with the rest of the story of scripture? Does it chime with the kind of broader... Um, understanding of the gospel that we see in the whole of, of the Bible. And if it does, then you can maybe see some sense in those kind of readings. If it doesn't, it may be a sign it's on the, in, the wrong, in the wrong direction. Um, so there is a kind of, I suppose, within a, a broader biblical theology, if you like, um, uh, there is a test to stop you doing anything you want with, it, with those readings. Um, and that gives it a control um, that could work. I mean, I, I've always felt, you know, taking the the prodigal son story um uh, that moment when the the son returns to the father and is embraced by the father he's 
uh, at the end of his tether, he is the end of his journey. And there's that moment in the story where, where it says, um, uh, you know, rejoice for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And I often wonder whether there's something in that. There's a kind of little hint there of the father embracing the son, the son who has given up his life for the sins of the world, who is at the end of his resources, and the father picks him up and raises him to life again. Is there an echo there of Jesus and, and the resurrection? So actually these stories are much more kind of redolent than we we ever imagine. And so what you're doing really when you're reading scripture is, is seeing it with several different sets of eyes. Um, but I mean... How, uh, it's one of the questions that anybody involved in theological education gets over and over is how do we use the Bible devotionally when we've done all the hermeneutical, critical um, scholarship uh, of Scripture. Obviously, you've got several degrees, Graham. How do you do <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, I, I, I do recognise the problem, and I can remember when I was first studying theology formally, doing my original theology degree, really finding it quite difficult going back to read the Bible devotionally because I was always bringing the questions that I was trying to answer in my essays back to my Bible reading. And, and you know, you're reading an Old Testament text and you're, and you're trying to work out, oh, you know, which, which source does this come from and what period is it from? And, uh, and you almost get caught up in the thicket of, of those um, kind of hermeneutical questions. Um, so there can be a, a kind of complexity in that, and I, I suppose, in a way, you almost kind of have to go through that process of of um, uh, being aware of the questions that that critical scholarship brings to the reading of the Bible. But I think, in, in I think, my own experience is that that troubled me for a while. Um, but after a while, I almost came through that to uh, uh, the other side of it, and um, you come back to a sort of simplicity of reading the Bible. But it's not the same as the simplicity you had before you did the study. It's uh, what's sometimes called a sort of second naivety, mm. a, sort of, um, a, a sort of freshness to it. And I suppose um, what, what I think about it is, is that um, I suppose when, I, when I read the Bible today, my question that I bring to the Bible is, what is God saying to me and to the church and to the world through this text? Um, and I bring to that all the awareness of critical scholarship. So, for example, if I'm reading a, an Old Testament text, I will want to be asking myself the question, where does this come from? Is mm. it from the exile? Is it from before the exile? Is it after Israel has returned? Is this text, is it, is it one that's been edited in the light of Israel's experience of exile? Because often that is a lot of the, yep. the Old Testament. And that sometimes can bring a richness and, and, and a... And a understanding to the text that you didn't have have before um but i don't want to get stuck in those questions i want to get through that bring those questions to it um bring a, a knowledge of the origins the um the nature of this text the period in which it emerged but then still ask the question okay given all of that what is god saying to me through it because of this belief that the bible is the way god speaks to us and that the Bible is God's word to us. It's living, yes. Yeah. Exactly, that's right, yeah. yeah. How, about, how, about, how about you? How, do you? how did you find that experience of, of um, grappling with some of the historical critical stuff and then beginning to read it as a, as a Christian, as a, um, as a believer in Jesus? And I think, to begin with, I was afraid that it was unfaithful to do that kind of critical work on it and that it was... Um, it was uh, denying the authority of scripture um, uh, and um, 
Uh, and that's a, a, a precious and necessary concept as far as I'm concerned, theologically, the, the authority of Scripture. And then I began actually the, to realise that um, that it might actually be recognising the authority of Scripture, that paying that kind of attention to the reality of what God has given us in Scripture is putting myself under its authority rather than telling it what kind of authority it has to have. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so actually that sort of dedicated patient willingness to uncover um, what it is, what kind of a text this is and why it's life-giving, why it's been life-giving for thousands of years to so many people and why that draws me into that bigger um, story. And, and, watching, uh, and so this kind of um, question that we've been raising about echoes in the text, watching the way in which other users of scripture before me over these thousands of years have asked um, questions of different passages and brought that into their own lives and then um, and seen a whole tradition of exegesis um, developing which we are now part of we are faithful to how it's been read but uh, we assume that it continues to have life and meaning going forward yes, that's, that's right because it because I guess the, the bible presents itself to us as a historical text it's not a, a collection of free-floating philosophical theorems or theora, whatever the, whatever the <laughs> plural of theorem is. Um, and neither is it a, a, a pure argument. It isn't a sort of set of sayings or gnomic sayings of Jesus or the, um, as some of the, the Gnostic Gospels are. It, it's a deeply historical text. It's written about particular times and particular places. And therefore, it almost demands to be treated as a historical text and the questions and historical questions being asked of it. So the question, you know, when was this written? Who wrote it? Seems to be a very legitimate question to ask. Um, and uh, so when you're reading the book of Isaiah and you're trying to work out, okay, well, maybe, as many scholars say, there are several different books from different periods that have been brought together in one um, in one actual book under the name of the prophet Isaiah. It seems to be a quite legitimate question to ask of this particular bit. Which period are we talking about here? And the more accurately you can get an answer to that, the, the, maybe the clearer... Um, the sense of the message comes, and the uh, easier, well, easy is probably the wrong word, but the, um, you know, it becomes um, uh, just a little bit more uh, possible to see what it is actually that God might be saying to you. If he's saying that in that context, he might be saying this in this context where we are today. So I think the historical uh, nature of the text almost demands that we do that historical work and that isn't being unfaithful to scripture it's actually being properly faithful by paying full attention to the way in which God has revealed himself to us in this text and and it also then um, requires us to pay attention to the way in which God does act and interact yeah. Yeah. with us mm. um, I mean mm. uh, so we don't tell the story of Jesus um, abstracted from the fact that Jesus really lived at a particular time in a particular yeah. place. That's yeah. that's the story yeah. that God. That's that's the reality that God has yeah. given us. And that our salvation comes not through the teaching of Jesus, but through the incarnation, exactly. the death, and the resurrection events that happened in time and space and history. So it sounds as though we're sort of saying that God is not afraid of those kind of yeah. questions. Mm. Well, God's mm. not afraid of anything, obviously. Yeah, exactly. yes. <laughs> um, but that actually we are, mm. we shouldn't be afraid of them, yeah. that, um, that we should trust yeah. God's mm. authority through this yeah. But process. we don't get stuck with those questions, because I think that's, that's, the, yeah. that's the, the, next the hesitation yeah. that I think a lot of people had. And I think that I had when I first started reading the Bible as a sort of theological student, was that I did get stuck in those yeah. questions. And therefore I was almost unable to hear the word of God to me through the text of Scripture, because that's all I was... 
I was thinking about, and you kind of have to get through to that next phase beyond it. Um, uh, you know, and part of that I think is is this conviction that that um, that, that God speaks in and through the Bible. Uh, hearing what He is saying at this particular time and space isn't always easy to do, but that conviction, um, and that this is the church's book. That I'm not the only person reading this. Exactly. I'm reading it in the light of 2,000 years of, of reading it, and actually that, and becoming aware of that is an important part of it. And that seems to be why, in theological study, we do not just biblical studies, but we do church history and historical theology, because actually the way we read the text has been influenced by all that reading before. We don't come to it afresh like first-century Christians. No, um, we come to it in the light of of 2,000 years of reading. And our interpretation of it is shaped by that, whether we know it or not. I think um, I think it was probably the great Swiss theologian Karl Barth who said something like, um, "the the Bible um, imposes itself upon the church. Mm, mm. It's something um, that isn't entirely. It isn't ours just to say. What does it just mean for me? Yep. It is something external to us as mm. church that requires our obedience, yep, yep. and therefore to give it that kind of attention, not to go, to go straight from." What, from from the text to what does this mean for me, but actually yeah. to pay attention to what it it is in context as well. Yeah, yeah I remember a number of years ago, I, was, I edited a, a volume um, which was part of a thing called the Reformation Commentary on Scripture, which was basically an attempt to yeah, think of the reformers from the 16th, 17th centuries as, um, as readers of Scripture primarily. They weren't primarily systematic theologians or ethicists or liturgists they were readers of scripture and trying to say well how did they take the text of scripture and how did they how did they read it and so I was given Philippians and Colossians mm. and so I spent a couple of years you know plowing through sermons and commentaries written by reformation era um, uh, uh, readers of scripture you know on the both catholic and protestant side of, of those debates and it was an absolutely fascinating exercise yeah, in how, how the Bible was read in a particular context. And a number of kind of key themes drew out of you know, the way in which those themes that are there in Philippians and Colossians actually spoke into the events and the sensibilities and the disputes of 16th century, 17th century um, uh, Christians, Christian Christianity. And some of those you look back on and you thought, well, you know, it's very different. We don't really think about those things. So they, but other, other bits of it were really quite um, profound. So, for example, you know, um, a lot of you know, Paul's reflections in Philippians on getting towards the end of his life and thinking mm. about death and looking back uh, on the sufferings and struggles uh, and thinking about in the 16th century how life was very fragile. You know, they didn't have a national health service or, mm. or um, in extended health care and life could end very quickly and so death was a constant presence for people in a way that it isn't quite so much for us we can relegate it you know that's going to happen at the end of our lives when we're, when we're old um, and uh, these were readers who were bringing their experience of the presence of death they had death all around them people were dying all around you know that death was a constant presence and, and, and finding a, a richness in the text there and its references to death and the afterlife and the future hope that probably didn't speak as quite so, so powerfully into to my day and it was a, it was a kind of reminder of how actually, you know, reading the Bible through the lens of people who've read it before me, can actually uncover bits of it that I, I might miss mm. as I go through. And and then I suppose the the next question, Graham, is: Does that mean that every Christian has to do this kind of has to do a degree in theology mm. before they mm. can read the Bible? Mm. And presumably, we're not saying that. No, 
No, I think that's right. Yeah, I think we're, um, some Christians do, and uh, that may be your calling, but it's certainly not a calling for everyone. Having said that, I think, I think it is incumbent on all of us to do as much as we can to be good readers of the Bible. Um, that doesn't mean reading a theology degree, but it might mean reading some some uh, books around the mm. text of Scripture, just taking some simple commentaries, reading some Bible reading notes, something that will give you a bit of the context. So it's not so you do actually do a little bit of that historical work, and you're aware of the historical nature of the text, um, rather than just treating it as a sort of book that just descends from on high without yeah. any historical context at all. It may be also that that you read it wherever possible with other people yeah, yeah. so that again there's a little bit of a corrective to applying it just to me yeah, I yeah. mean one of the things I loved about the question that that got us going on all of this yeah. about the Good Samaritan is that um, the, 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 the person who emailed in had clearly was reading with attention yeah. so noticing yeah. possible echoes mm. there's, mm. there was a sort of uh, loving attention to the text that was enable, enabling yeah him to see something mm. richer yeah. in there yeah and um, trying out ideas um because it seems to me you need we need to bring a sort of imagination to the text mm. one, of, one of the things that i find helps me in the reading of the of the text especially the, the gospels perhaps is um when I've, I've spent quite a bit of time visiting the holy land and, and i feel i know those places of jerusalem and galilee pretty well having been there many many times and i, I try when i'm re- reading it as far as I can, just to kind of imagine mm. the place, the scene, the smells, the people, the dress. Um, and sometimes that can bring out something uh, fresh. And I find whenever I do go, I come back, I read it with a little bit more freshness that I didn't have before. And again, it's not the case that everybody has to go to the Holy Land to be able to read the Bible. You can read the Bible perfectly well without it. But just those extra things you can do... Um, uh, to enable you to, to to read it more responsibly, more attentively, um, paying attention to its geographical as well as historical context. I think all that helps in reading the Bible uh, responsibly and well. Mm. Which is what we're all called to do, isn't it? Yeah, so, that's right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. One of the things I, I've... I, mean, I guess one of the questions I was going to ask you, Jane, was um, if you had a, a tip, something you'd want to say in, a, in terms of people reading the Bible, especially perhaps if you've... If you've, um, you know, pe- people listening to God Pod, maybe people who've read the Bible a lot in the years to, years gone by, they may know it very well, and the Bible can lose its freshness when you've read it over and over again, and it's the same stories, the same texts. Um, how can you bring a freshness to your reading the Bible? How can you see new things in it? How can you um, uh, approach it in new ways? Do you have any particular guidance and tips as to how people might do that? How long have we got? <laughs> I mean, I think, again, the, the Christian tradition is just full of um, uh, tried and tested ways of, re- of opening ourselves up afresh to, uh, to the Bible. One of them is, is Lectio Divina, where you, um, which is a way of prayer where you take a, a short passage and you read it slowly several times, preferably with a group of people. Um, and uh, specifically ask God to speak to you through it. And it is extraordinary um, how how over and over and over again something fresh comes out of that. Um, Ignatian spirituality has a a, a brilliant method for engaging imaginatively uh, with a text of of the Bible, um, giving you a discipline of thinking, who am I in this text? Yeah, it's a good question to ask, isn't it? If you read a story, say the Good Samaritan, who am I? 
Am I the Good Samaritan? Am I the person yeah. who's... Am I the priest? Am I the Levite? Am I the person who's been beaten up at the side of the road? Where do I see myself in that story? And, and again, um, reading with others. Um, it is, uh, we as a staff team, every so often here at St. Melitus College, try and do um, some, of, some sort of scriptural reading together. Yeah. And it is extraordinary how um, that yeah. brings out fresh things yeah. as you read together. It makes you, again, think this is part of what God is hoping we will do with his book mm. is actually mm. read it together and nourish each other through mm. it. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I think it, I, I, it was probably Mike who said this on a previous occasion, the Bible grows as you do. Yeah. So um, mm. uh, as, as we grow in age and faith and, um, and, mm. and so on, there, there's, I'm always amazed there's always something new in the Bible. Yeah. So I think if it feels as though, it's, as though you know it too well, um, uh, I think the chances are um, we are deceiving ourselves if we think we know it too well to that's find new things in it. That's absolutely right. And I, and I, I suppose I think that the, the reason why it's endlessly fascinating and you can never get to the bottom of it and why, as you say, you know, if it feels dull, that's because we've become dull, yes. because the text has become dull. And yeah. the reason for that is, is because of the subject nature of the Bible. The Bible is there to enable us to know God. And God is endlessly fascinating, and we can never get to the end of understanding God. That's that's why it's worth keeping going with the Bible. Uh, any other text, you can think, well, you might get to the end of it because mm. you've kind of read it so many times, you've understood all the different possibilities because the text is all you've got. Whereas it's that you know that verse at the end of John's Gospel where he says, you know, there is no end of the writing of books, but you know these things are written so that you may believe uh, in. Jesus Christ, and that you may have life in his name. The point of the Bible is to point you to Jesus and the God of Jesus Christ. And that's why the Bible is endlessly, has, has so much more for us, because it's leading us into a knowledge of a God who mm. we can never get to the end of, of knowing. And that, that means that reading the Bible is not just finding all kinds of other random interpretations that might be fanciful and weird, but because it's leading us uh, towards Jesus Christ and the God he, he knew as Father. That's why it it's it, you can never get tired of it mm. ultimately mm. I, I mean if I, I can add just one little tip myself something I've been doing recently is um, uh, try, trying a new translation oh that's a good idea because yes. you can get used to the particular translation that you you know well um, and you, you know the words quite well if you if you know Greek that helps a little bit or Hebrew you can you can read that but if you don't know that um, trying a new translation can be really good. So I'm reading at the moment um, uh, the translation of the, of the New Testament by David Bentley Hart, mm. um, who has written this very, or translated it in a very, uh, he's tried to be as close to the text as he can. So the tenses, for example, in the, the Gospels mm. are often quite mixed up, some of them present, some of them past. Um, and obviously there are different past tenses in, in Greek, aorists and imperatives and so on. And he tries to be as faithful as he can to those. So often the tenses are mixed up in a way that doesn't always make immediate sort of grammatical sense in English, but he just sort of mixes up the text and he, he just gives it a different take to it. And every now and again, you come across a word that's, oh gosh, that's interesting. You know, I haven't mm. seen that word, that word. And it brings a freshness and a rawness to it. Um, and so it's, it's kind of helping me read the gospel with new, new eyes and seeing... Uh, people encounter Jesus, and it's kind of helping me encounter Jesus, I think, in, in fresh 
ways as I read that mm. text. So it's one of the things you can try if the Bible feels a little bit, um, uh, you know, a bit dull. Really good advice. So anyway, um, always when we start out on GodPod, we always think we're going to t- tackle three or four questions. <laughs> very often only end up with one. So we <laughs> that, ever That's up theologians with one. for you. I'm afraid. I'm afraid it is, exactly. So anyway, Gary, thank you very much for your question. And um, uh, uh, it's been fascinating to talk about reading the Bible uh, together. So do uh, keep on sending in uh, your, um, uh, your questions to us. You can find the uh, email address... Uh, which I should really know what it is, but it's on the website and it's on the um, uh, the text. Maybe I'll, I'll yeah, we'll talk to it another time. Anyway, do send in your questions because we love to get them. And every now and again, um, we may do one every five years. Exactly, so. that's right. Yeah, we'll have a go at doing them. Anyway, so anyway, that's um, Godford for today. Thank you, Jane, very much. Lovely to be here. Great to be here as well. And uh, we will do uh, that. Um, speak to you another time soon. Bye bye. Godpod, a podcast from St Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try.